have your Bibles, turn with me or look with me to Psalm 119, the 119th Psalm. Just uh, looking around the room and just reflecting. And uh, maybe you look around the room, you see some guys that are here with us this morning. They look a little different. They look like their face is shining. Uh, it's the, it's a, um, <clears throat> and it's because they just came back from the Shepherds Conference. Uh, that's a pastor's conference, the elders, church leaders conference down in Los Angeles that many of our, many of our elders as well as uh, men who in the church who desire to become shepherds or be shepherds and be uh, shepherds of the flock of God have gone to. And just to, uh, just come, usually when you come back from the conference, I didn't get to go, but I was able to live stream some of the uh, sermons over the internet. Thank God for the internet. But, uh, and so my face is not shining as much, but, uh, it was just, uh, I always think about how, uh, when you go to the shepherd's conference and these guys have gone and you can just ask them, ask them about it, do ask them about it. Cause they're just like overflowing with truth this morning. They've just heard so much of God's truths and, uh, many godly, uh, faithful shepherds who spoke to them. And, um, I was just thinking about it, especially it's really hard as a pastor, to go to Shepherd's Conference and then go speak from the pulpit Sunday morning. Uh, you just feel so inadequate, you know. You've heard these great, godly, gifted men, you know, men like John MacArthur, Albert Moeller, Ligon Duncan, uh, Steve, uh, um, uh, Steve Lawson, um, and Paul Washer uh, now these days. Uh, he's uh, And these guys and, and others... Uh, are just such gifted speakers, you know. And the pastor in, in, in the pulpit just realizes that, you know, I, I am not a, a pastor, theologian par excellence like John MacArthur. I'm just not that kind of guy. Though we are theologians, okay, don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm not the, 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 the scholarly man who has great insight into the application of God's word to society today like Albert Moeller. I'm not the systematic theologian like a Ligon Duncan who just opens up so much theology from a single verse in scripture. And we're definitely not uh, the fiery, passionate preachers like our Steve Lawson or, uh, or Paul Washer, uh, who basically wept through his whole sermon uh, this past week. And uh, you just realize that uh, we're not those kind of men. But those men would say and would affirm to every preacher who goes back to the pulpit and preaches this week that it's not about the man, that it's, only, it's always been about this book, that the man of God who opens up each week from the pulpit that, and among, in the front of the people that he is called to shepherd. And it is really just the faithfulness of a man who, uh, no matter what his giftedness or abilities or, or strengths, if he faithfully just opens up the word each week, and teaches the word, God will use that man. God will use the preaching of his word because it is always about God's word, never about God's man. So it's my great great joy then to open up God's word to you this morning. Thank God for this word that he gives to us. Will you stand with me uh, as we hear the word of God read uh, this morning? Psalm 119, thankful so much for this book can you imagine if I had to stand up here and just kind of make up things to say? Oh, I'd run out really quickly. But we thank God for the infinite truths, uh, eternal truths of God's word. Psalm 119, verse 17 through 24. We read, the psalmist says, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live 
and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And as we open up to this very well-known psalm, this rich psalm that speaks of the preciousness of your word, Father, impress upon our hearts the preciousness of your word, the treasure that this book is. Father, and cause us to renew our love and our, our treasure of this word, our delight in it, our longing for it, that you cause us to open up our eyes, Father, that we might see the wonderful treasures within. Lord, equip us from your word, we who live as strangers in a fallen world, we who uh, desperately need you and your word. Father, cause us to see all this. Equip us for life as we sojourn here on earth. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would teach us now so that the glory might belong and be given to you, that Christ, even in this Old Testament text, might be magnified. Father, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Speak to each one here, Lord, today, exactly that which you wish them to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's been a joy since moving into our building here at uh, the corner of 14th and Terraval that so many of you continue to come, and so many of you, a good number of you, have newly come and joined us here uh, as a church. And whether you are a new person to the church or maybe a not-so-new person to church, I trust that as you attend here for any amount of time, you will come to realize that, as is reflected in our name, San Francisco Bible Church, that the Bible is a vital part of the life and ministry of this church. This book that we open each week is not merely a book of inspirations or suggestions. This book is a book of revelation. And when I say revelation, I just I mean, oh, just like, oh, that was a revelation to me. That was something new I didn't learn before. I, I, you know, but this book is unique when it comes to the book, when it uses the term revelation. Well, God's word is a book of revelation in that it reveals to us, to mankind, things that we could never learn anywhere else in this universe. You could go and be an astronaut and travel to the farthest ends of this universe. You could be one of those who go into the depths of the sea. You could go all around this world and ten times over. And you would not be able to learn the revelations that are made known to us in this book. This book is unique in that it is a, a revelation of God. It's a revelation of who he is. And it's a revelation of his will for his people, for mankind. It's, a re- it's full of instructions and commands and wisdom for us. And so last year, uh, <clears throat> just I 
as, a, an, as an occasional reminder to us of the preciousness of God's Word and the, and the value of God's Word, I began an occasional series on the Word of God from Psalm 119. And this morning, I'd like to continue this series here, and really our third part in this series, so that we might understand why, as a church of Jesus Christ, we are committed to teaching God's Word. And by doing so, I trust that we, you and I will be reminded of our own need for God's Word. And really, in a sense, if I could even convey through this, this uh, stanza of this psalm, really, what is at stake? What is at stake when it comes to the people of God in relationship to the Word of God? What is at stake? Why we need the Word of God? You know, we could say, well, I'm saved. I don't, I don't really need the Word of God. I don't need all that other stuff. But there is something great at stake for why you and I need the Word of God for our world. And we'll talk about that today as well. Just as a brief review of Psalm 119, I'll just give you an overview for those of you that are new with us. It is the longest psalm in the Bible. Its theme is clearly the Word of God. We see throughout this, this psalm, in fact, the psalmist uses eight different words for the Word. From the simple term, the word, to commandments, to the law, to statutes, to ordinances, and to various other words. Eight different words are used. It's kind of just, the number eight is sort of prominent in this psalm because every eight verses form a stanza. There are 22 stanzas, each representing the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so this psalm is an acrostic. And so for us today, on this third stanza of this of this psalm, every verse within this third stanza, if you look at the Hebrew, all begin with the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and that Hebrew letter is Gimel, Gimel, kind of our, equivalent to our letter C. Now, when we try to categorize this psalm, it doesn't lend to easy categorization. But when we look at this particular stanza here, it reads like a lament. Now, <clears throat> Uh, lament psalms are basically those psalms where a person is going through trials, going through difficulties, and basically it's kind of like holy complaining to the Lord, you know. Holy, Lord, why? Lord, how long? Lord, uh, why do the wicked suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? And why do I go through a faith, this death, and, death and opposition? And so this reads like a lament, because the author is facing opposition from those who don't follow God, he cries out to God for deliverance from his troubles. And he knows that only God's word can supply what he needs to live and walk in a world that is opposed to God and his people. So even as we look at this lament here, it doesn't, for every Christian, all Christian lament doesn't remain in lament. It doesn't wallow in despair alone. But for the believer in God, the worship of God, it always leads to prayer. It always leads to trust in God, and that's what we find here in this psalm, this particular stanza of the psalm as well. As we study this third stanza of this 119th psalm, may we learn to pray, because this, this, this is a prayer. The whole psalm is a prayer, really, prayer to God, but this particular stanza is very clearly a prayer. Pray, may we pray as the psalmist, learning, recognizing how much we need God's word, as we journey through this fallen world. As a simple outline for us today, uh, this, these eight verses break into four couplets, four uh, pairs of verses. And each pair of verses will give us a reason 
for God's people to look to God's word in a world that is opposed to it. The psalm divides into these four verses. And first of all, we look at the first two verses. We look to God's word word in a world opposed to it in light of the psalmist's supplication for God's word. That we see here an example from the psalmist himself. As he's, this, he, he is manifesting a prayer. He's writing, describing a prayer that he prays to God. Verse 17, 18, look with me there. Verse 17, 18, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Up to this point, the first 16 verses of this, of this, uh, this psalm, there's only been one command, one imperative. But here in verse 17, 18, we find two expressing the, the prayer request, the, the, really the, the crying out the, uh, to God, deal bountifully with your servant and open my eyes. But even before we get to the requests themselves, we don't want to miss this little thing, this small little title that, he, that the psalmist uses to address himself. We all normally would just gloss over these things. But the psalmist begins here, and as well as ends in verse 23, by identifying himself as your servant. It is, this term, your servant, is a recognition, first and foremost, as a servant, then someone must be his master, and that master is God. Not only is God his master, but God is his Lord. And now, I know this is kind of obvious, and, but it, it bears worth saying that the people of God who call God their God and their Lord are those who should desire to follow the instructions of their God, right? You're, if you call yourself a, God, a servant of God, God's servant, God's people, that, he, that he's your Lord, he's your God, then it should follow, it should naturally follow that you will desire to want to follow those instructions, follow God's commands, too many people today, too many Christians, professing Christians these days, will profess faith in God, profess faith in Christ, but in their lives, neither obey nor serve Christ. What kind of servant does not serve Christ? What kind of follower does not follow Christ? What kind of Christian does not behave like Christ? Now, I know that we cannot do this perfectly, but this should be our desire as Christians. The servant of God is one who is going to seek to obey God's word by his grace. And as we seek to obey God's word, it ought to be reflected in our prayer life. Because if you've learned anything as a Christian, when you just, even though as you seek to obey God's word, you realize that on your own you are unable to. We cannot. We fail. So if you are a servant of God, a follower of Christ, then I trust you will find this prayer very familiar. You will share this kind of prayer as the psalmist does. And so we look to the request itself then. There are two, as he makes his supplication for God's word, there are two requests that he makes. First of all, number one, the request is, deal bountifully with me, he says. Deal bountifully with your servant. By the way, these two requests both relate to the word of God, as we'll see. 
Now, when we see this phrase, deal bountifully with me, when we think about it, we say, wow, does God, is he praying for a, a rich harvest? You know, it's like, man, God's going to give me a harvest. I want my apple tree to bear fruits this year. Deal bountifully with me, Lord. Is it praying for more grace? Like, you know, I just, man, I, I just need more grace this year. God, in general, God, give me more grace. A general prayer request. And those things may be included to in some extent as God gives those things and is able to give those things. It's not wrong to pray for those things. But this prayer request is a very specific prayer request. In three other times in the Psalms, this particular, uh, <clears throat> this particular kind of forma- construction of the verb is used. And I'll list those for you there. You can look it up at your leisure. And wherever it's used in this, in this construction, the context of that that's used deal bountifully is always in the, in the context of, being, of the psalmist being threatened by enemies and death being threatened, a very real threat of enemies and death. And so wherever this request to deal bountifully is made, it is a request for deliverance, a request for deliverance from danger and from enemies. And when we look at this, the context of this stanza, this psalm, this, this third stanza in this psalm, we see that it fits. There is indication in this psalm of opposition that the psalmist faces. That there, are, there, are, there is contempt for him. There are people who are, even, there are leaders, princes who stand against him, speak ill of him. Which is not surprising for the people of God. Because historically, as well as biblically, the follower of God faces opposition from those who do not follow God. As, we, uh, as Elder Dale read even in the, our call to worship this morning in 2 Timothy 3.12... Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This persecution varies in different ways. But make no mistake, in general, those who desire to live according to God's word will face persecution. And so the psalmist then prays for deliverance from the persecution that he's facing. Deal bountifully with your servant. And what is the result? What is his desire for deliverance for? That I may live and keep your word. This prayer is an amazing revelation or revealing of the, the heart of a worshiper of God. Now, I get it. If I'm facing death, I'm facing enemies, I would pray for deliverance too. I'd say, God, deliver me. We understand that. And even the result, that I may live. Oh, yeah, if I'm faced, threatened with death, I'm going to pray, God, deliver me that I may live. But what he says right after that stands out. That I may live and keep your word. And keep your word. He prays for God's deliverance so that he may live and do what? Now, I don't know about you. But if I'm threatened with life and my life flashed before me, I'm praying for deliverance. When I was a young man, I know, oh, Lord, deliver me so that, I, so that I may live and then get married and have kids and become a millionaire. That was my prayer in a shallow kind of way. Oh, man, I may live, oh, Lord, deliver me from danger and harm that I may live and that I may fulfill my dreams. Help me, deliver me so that I may live and further my career that I may be able to raise that family, further deliver me so that I may write that book that I've always wanted to do, deliver me that I may live so I can eventually travel all around the world, that I might check off that bu- my bucket list. 
Now, I get that kind of prayer. Those are man-centered kind of prayers. Focus on ourselves. But he doesn't pray that. He says, deliver me that I may live and keep your word. The psalmist's prayer is not just a deliverance from his enemies, but deliverance so that he may obey God's word. It is a God-glorifying focus. This is praying as Jesus prayed, taught us to pray, thy will be done. Deliver me so that I may do your will, Lord, so that I may fulfill your purposes for me. Here is a profound truth that reflected in this prayer that the servant of God lives to keep God's word. You and I live on this world as God's servants to keep his word, to do his will. Your purpose and mine on earth is not just to do whatever we want, not just to do whatever we will, but to do God's will, to love God, to love people, to make disciples, to glorify God among countless other commands and instructions and revelations of the will of God and his word. This is the psalmist's prayer. He makes a prayer request of God that he would deliver him from opposition so that he might live and obey God's word. The second request that he prays reflects this same desire. In the next verse, he prays, open my eyes. Open my eyes. And I think if you just re-look at the context, this is not, uh, <clears throat> we can understand this is figurative speech. He's not praying for a physical eyesight that he's blind and he needs his eyes physically healed. But he is praying for, an op- uh, for spiritual insight that his spiritual eyes might be opened up to see the things which he cannot see in and of his own ability. God's word is a treasure chest. It's a treasure, this book. In it are wonderful things, treasures that we would not find anywhere else, treasures that we would never know apart from God revealing it to you and me. This book reveals to us God's existence. It reveals to us God's character. It reveals to us God's will. It reveals to us God's great salvation and God's greater son, Jesus Christ. And though his word is readily available to all, we each have five, ten different copies of it at our homes. Even the unbeliever probably has a copy on his shelf. Yet despite its availability, no one comes to grasp these truths apart from God opening one's eyes. None of us do. God has to open up our eyes because we are blinded by sin. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Even, when you re- even when, as an unbeliever, when you read the Bible, what did you say? Just like me, I'm like, yeah, I feel good, but it didn't change my life. I'm like, mm, that's nice. That kind of, sounds cool. That's neat. But did I believe in Jesus? Nope. Sometimes people read it. They study this as part of their scholars in the Bible who do not believe the Bible. Rather, he cannot understand them 
Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. These are things that only this, the person who is led by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, can understand, by God's Spirit. We cannot grasp the truths of God's Word apart from God's help. No one can. Neither the unbeliever nor the believer. We all need God's help. We need God's spirit to enable us. That's why God gave us the spirit. Even Jesus made that clear when he says, I'm going to send you my helper who's going to lead you into my truth, guide you into my truths. He's going to remind you the things that I've taught you. We need God to understand and grasp the truths of God. And this is the prayer of God's servant. Every time you or I come to God's word, Lord, open my eyes that I might see the wonderful things of your word. Help me to see more than just the exegetical detail. Help me to see just, oh, the beauty of the poetry. Help me to see more than just, oh, just some technical, technical observations. Help me to see more than just wise sayings. Help me to see that this is your truths. Help me to see that these are your words. These are the words of life. These are God's word. And this is the prayer. A desire to understand God's word. To, to <clears throat> have God open up his word to us. And keep, and so that we so that we may keep and obey God's word. So in the remaining verses of this stanza, the psalmist gives us then three specific reasons to look to God's word in a world that's opposed to it. Why does he pray? Why does he pray? Uh, Make these prayer requests? Because God's word is characterized by three things. There are three things that he needs. First of all, or that he finds in God's word. First of all, he finds sustenance in God's word. The psalmist finds sustenance. The, The servant of God finds food in God's word. What he needs in God's word. Look at with me to verse 19 to 20. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. <coughs> the psalmist, here if you notice, he identifies himself as a stranger. Now, <clears throat> sadly today, the word stranger in our English language has a very different connotation than it did back in the days of the Bible. In fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was going through a, a little children's book with my, with my daughter about strangers. And when, you know, when you're teaching kids about strangers, you know what you're talking about. Bad people. Don't, you know, go talk with strangers. Go, don't go with strangers. Don't, you know, don't try to take and receive candy from strangers. Strangers these days are, are a bad thing, at least from when you're trying to teach children about strangers. But that's not the idea when it comes to the Bible. The Bible, the stranger, word stranger, it's, it's, a very, <clears throat> it's a very theologically rich term. It's a term that is even used of God's people. Uh, <clears throat> when he says, I am a stranger, <clears throat> it is, refers, uh, it's, it's, sometimes, it's used equivalent with other words such as Alien, and that's kind of a, doesn't even have the same meaning anymore today as well. Or in other words, less used, but it still has the same idea 
today, thankfully, is this word sojourner, sojourner. And it's like, well, when you hear the word sojourner, you hear the word journey. That's kind of the picture of this word. A sojourner, an alien, a stranger is basically someone who is living temporarily in the world. He's living temporarily in a land, a land where he's not a resident, where he's not a citizen of it. He has no rights or inherited rights within the land. There's nothing that he owns in the land. He's just passing through. That's a sojourner. He's on a journey, if you will. And God uses this term sojourner, alien, stranger of his people. He uses it very significantly in Leviticus 25 to 23, 25, 23 of Israel. He tells the Israelites, and in the context of talking to them about the land, he calls them aliens and strangers. He says, because you're aliens and strangers, that's why he gives them all sorts of rules about what they can and cannot do with the land, how they cannot sell it, they can't sell it permanently, that always they have to try to redeem it. And then in every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, it automatically goes back to the original owner. And all this because, he says, because you're aliens and strangers in the land with me. They are aliens and strangers. They're just, he, he wants them to understand, the Israel to understand, that they're just passing through. That no matter, even though they may own, uh, they may, in a sense, inhabit the land, he says he's trying to teach them that this is not their home. That the land, and, and it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God. And they live there as strangers, as strangers and those sojourners do, in complete dependence upon and at the mercy of the one who owns it. And that is God in this case. Then instead, they have a home, an eternal home, a heavenly home, a heavenly country that, it will, that is theirs, but it will be in heaven with God the Father. This alien stranger terminology not only is used of Israel as the people of God, but also as the church as the people of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, we find that verse there as well. You see, the people of God are strangers on the earth. If you are belong to the people of God, to belong to God, you're a follower of Christ, you are also a stranger. And you are strangers on the earth here who live completely dependent on God's grace. Often in the Old Testament, strangers are, are listed together with orphans and widows. Because orphans and widows and strangers were often in, that, in their society those who were most helpless and needy. They didn't have connections to the land. They were, they were foreigners. And so they weren't going to be treated the same as fellow citizens, fellow residents of the land. And this idea, and, and so oftentimes these strangers, as sojourners, the connotation is that they are needy, helpless people. It's very equivalent, much equivalent to our term today, even, it's not an exact term, but when we think of refugees, people who are basically have to leave their homeland, and they're living in another land temporarily, and we call them refugees. And if you look on the news, follow the news, there is a great need and helplessness among refugees. And by the way, just as an aside note, I wouldn't want to just encourage you, if you, if you think otherwise, because of our, just our political world today, that Christians should have only compassion for refugees because we too are refugees and strangers and aliens in this world. That's just a side note. But God calls his people Strangers, 
And the psalmist calls himself a stranger because he recognizes that he is helpless and needy. He's a stranger here on earth. He doesn't have anyone, in a sense, on his side. He's alone without a home and resources, but he knows where he can get help. He knows that his help comes from God and his word. He knows that his sustenance comes from God. And so that's why he prays, though I'm a stranger in the earth, he prays, do not hide your commandments from me. Lord, don't hide your word from me because that's what I need to live as a stranger in the earth. In his need, he prays for God's word. He prays for the guidance and nourishment that he can receive from within. Verse 20 echoes this longing when he writes, when he prays, my soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. Here we see a very intense description of the longing for God's word. He is he's crushed by it. It's, it's so heavy that it's way, he weighs him down. He's crushed with this longing that takes place at all times, he says. How often can you and I, how often can we say that we long for God's word? Do we, can we really say that we long for God's word at all times? If we don't, let me just correct that. The reason we don't is probably because we don't think of ourselves as strangers on earth. We think of ourselves as residents and citizens here. We have become comfortable with living in our world. We've become comfortable with the life that we live. We've become, we accepted the things that the world has offered to us, and we accept this life that is the world has given to us, and we are content with it, and we've forgotten that as aliens and strangers, we should not be comfortable with this world, that the things of this world, the, <clears throat> the offerings of the sinful fallen world are not our joy and treasure. God alone in his word, revealed in his word, is our joy and treasure. We should long more for the things of the God, the things in his word, than things of this world. But sadly, you and I know the, the, what we feel, what we often think, that we do settle for the things of this world. We do end up living like citizens and residents of this world when we're really just strangers here. Too many of us forget that this world is not on our side. We watch television, we, we accept the media <clears throat> and the shows with, without discernment, thinking, oh, it's all good. We listen to the, the words of our politicians and we accept everything they have to say, though maybe their lives are complete contrary to the word of God. We, <clears throat> we accept the wisdom of the world that they have to offer to us as, as, a, as alternatives instead of looking to God's word for wisdom and guidance. We must not forget that as aliens and strangers on earth, we are living and walking in a world that is opposed to the things of God. The world is not going to help you to walk in a manner worthy of God. If you want to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, you will not find it in the wisdom of this world, in the writings of this world, in the media of this world. Many of us are consumed by media. It's the internet generation. We're constantly on the internet. I find myself on the internet. And there is redeeming things on the internet. Don't get me wrong. If we are looking 
to the things that are not from the word of God for our instruction, for our entertainment, for our life. That means we are not looking to God's word. But what we need to walk in a manner pleasing the Lord is found in God's word and in his word alone. Here is our sustenance. Here is our life. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? When many of Jesus' disciples abandoned him, Jesus asked the 12 the question, that if, are you going to leave me also? Peter's response in John 6, 68 was this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. The words of eternal life are found here in this book, in this book alone. That is at stake here. They didn't say, well, you know, well, what can you get of us, Jesus? You, you're offer us, will you offer us more bread? Are you going to give us more healing? Are you going uh, to just help cast out some more demons? And those things are urgent things, and we all face those kind of critical, kind of uh, tragic things in life like that. But what Paul, what, what Peter realized on behalf of the 12 is that what is at stake, what matters, is the words of eternal life, their own and the eternal lives of the people that they would go and be ambassadors to. Do we believe this? Do we believe that the words of eternal life are more precious? And that's why we would come, keep coming to this word for sustenance, for nourishment for ourselves, but not just for ourselves, but also so that we might keep God's word and make disciples of all the nations. If so, then we will desire and long for this word. A third point, we move on in verse 21 to 22. We will also look to God's word because thirdly, there is security in God's word. There is security in God's word. Uh, verse 21 22, you rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Here in these two verses, the psalmist alludes to the opposition that he faces as a stranger in the earth. What is, uh, <clears throat> what is actually throughout the whole psalm is this opposition that he faces, and we see it kind of just more ex impl explicitly uh, uh, mentioned here. And as he, as he does so, as he describes this opposition, he expresses his confidence and dependence upon God to protect him from that opposition. Notice in verse 21 then, we name his first observation. He states that God rebukes those who don't follow his word. So he brings about and points out those who wander from God's commandments, those who don't follow God's commandments, those who reject and oppose God's commandments. He tells us, kind of by his description of the arrogant and cursed, the reason that they do so. Why don't they wander? Why do they wander from God's commandments? Why do they reject it? First of all, they do so out of arrogance, arrogant pride. They think, and arrogance is basically thinking more of yourself than you are. Basically, they think that they know better than God. Secondly, they do so because they are cursed. They're cursed by the fall. In their sin nature, they can't even see that in opposing God's word and rejecting and turning away from God's word, they are actually headed to destruction. They think they're good without God. They don't know that that's a lie. 
We are reminded here from the, that from the very beginning of the fall of mankind, the heart of sin is essentially simply a rejection of God's word. They wander from God's commandments because they reject God's word. They think they know better. You always think about the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It was the temptation of Eve, by, the deceptive temptation of Eve by Satan was, has God said? Causing her to, to question, to doubt whether God really said. Decide for yourself, Eve. You know better. God's hiding things from you. You can figure it out that this fruit is actually good for you. But she was wrong, and Adam was wrong. God's word, God here says, the psalmist says here that God himself will rebuke those who wander from his commandments, those who reject his word. He will do so sooner or later, but inevitably he will do so. But nevertheless, it is no surprise that those who oppose God's word also oppose God's people as well. And we see that uh, reflected in verse 22. Verse 22 tells us that the psalmist's opponents display reproach and contempt for 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 the psalmist, for him. They look down on him. They scorn and ridicule him. Why? For I observe your testimonies. Because he keeps God's words and and they do not. They laugh at him. They mock at him. They persecute him. There's a good lesson here for us, or a good reminder to take home from us for this, with this, with this mention. That you and I continue to live or live in a world that is essentially under the curse of sin, right? This world is under the curse. Every element from creation to mankind and to all that mankind puts their hand upon, whether it's government, whether it's institutions, businesses, uh, media, every element, any institution that man is behind, even though they may do so ignorantly because they are all, we are all under the curse of man, the world as a whole is opposed to God. It's designed to lead us to oppose God. And maybe not man may not do that intentionally, but Satan is working behind the scenes. And we must understand this, that there are basically two worldviews. There's an increasing divide between these two worldviews. It plays out in our culture, in our schools, our workplaces, our governments, and even our families. On one side are those who basically agree. They agree what the scripture says, that God is and God has spoken. And then on the other side is a more secular worldview. Those who reject the scriptures and say, no, God is not. God has not spoken. And you can imagine that these two disparate worldviews then will clash. And when they clash, they are increasingly clashing with vehement divide. We see this reflected in the scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, Peter writes, In all this, they, that is the unbelievers, they are surprised that you not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, or you just say sin, rebellion, and they malign you. See, the world is surprised oftentimes when you, you know, you have unbelieving friends or non-Christian friends. A lot of times they are surprised that you actually believe this book, right? You, what? You believe that? That's like saying you believe some, you know, just find some old ancient book and you just kind of live by it. So why we, don't you know that's kind of outdated? They're surprised that you actually live. And then when you tell them, well, I believe literally in this Bible, 
I believe the literal historical grammatical interpretation, when, when you explain that to them, you say, what? You believe that? They're surprised that you don't live like them. I remember, especially as a young Christian, many of my non-Christian friends would, would constantly, even though I, I was trying to walk a, a, the, a Christian life, they would constantly want to tempt me and say, no, come on, man, come on, come on, you know, dance this Friday, come on, let's go, you know, we're going clubbing. And they would want me to continue living the life that I used to live with them. And when I didn't, well, they jokingly maligned me. Just as, you know, they, now they, yeah, so they're joking. But behind that, every joke is a little truth. And sometimes it's not just friendly maligning, but it's vicious maligning from the world. When you say that you believe in God's existence in our world, you are labeled like childlike. When you say you believe God's word reveals a creation of the world in six days, you are laughed at as ignorant. When you believe God created marriage to be between a man and a woman, you are called hateful, homophobic. When you say that there is only one way to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, you are perceived as narrow-minded and intolerant. And when you say you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, you are identified as an extremist. Sadly, the opposition that we face in this world is not limited to just mere contempt. If it was just contempt for us, I think maybe many of us would be able to bear up under it. But I know that this contempt results in actual actions. For a good number of you, how many of you would dare say publicly in your workplaces the very thing, list of things that I just mentioned that you believe? Hoping, assuming you believe it. For a good number of you, if you did so, you would probably lose your job. You would be pushed, encouraged. They may not be able to fire you outright, but they would be pushed. And sadly, the fear of persecution, understandably so, will cause some of us to turn away from God's word. But God, the psalmist encourages us, God would encourage you, I encourage you, that as the servant of God, God's servant, you cannot pick and choose what you want to follow and believe from God's word. There is no heading here that says, well, this part is optional. Oh, this part you have to follow. If it were that easy. It is all required of us. It's all his word. These two verses tell us that God, but we are, can be encouraged that these two verses tell us that God will rebuke those who wander from his commandments. But also, he will deliver those who walk in his commandments. You see, if in trying to avoid man's rebuke, we will face God's rebuke. In facing this, but when we, in facing the scorn of man's reproach and contempt, we will find security in God's deliverance. In the curses of men, we rest in the blessings of God. As the psalmist would write, or had written earlier in Psalm 119, verse 1 and 2, particularly verse 2, he wrote, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies. You know, when opposition comes, contempt comes because of the scriptures, because of the word of God, it's easy just to want to not stop observing it. 
I, was re- I read an article not too long ago how uh, among young evangelicals, that's a good number of you, young evangelicals, millennial evangelicals, there is a huge number of you who say, I'm a Christian, but then also say, but I believe that gay marriage is okay. I'm okay. I'm for gay marriage. I think it's a right that everyone should have in clear contradiction to the word of God. And that's surprising. And that's the world we are living in. And I understand the, the pressures, particularly living in a city like San Francisco. You must be wise. I understand. But we must not be fearful. We must not wander from God's commands. We must continue to walk in them. Blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. There's security in God's word. The fourth and last reason to look to God's word is because there is strength in God's word. There is strength. Under the persecution, the opposition of the world, it's easy. It's, I, I get it. It's easy to, feel, to be worn down and feel weak and to want to give up, to flee from the battle. But God's word tells us that there is strength in his word. Verse 23 and 24, even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. These two verses reveal how the servant of God finds strength from God in the face of opposition. Now, verse 23 is kind of stands out because it's not just average folks who oppose the servant of God here. But he mentions that it's princes that are doing it. These are people in power. These are leaders, people in authority. These princes sit and talk against God's servant because he follows God's word. Now, in our day, in our country, we don't have princes, but we have government leaders. We have judges. We have mayors. We have, <clears throat> we have presidents. We have Supreme Court justices. We have bosses. And it's a scary thing when your opposition comes from those who are your leaders, those who are in a position to make it difficult for you, to make your life miserable. And I hope that you have not yet had to experience that, but if you follow some of just the news of our days, even in our recent days, recent years, the political and judicial leaders of our day are compelling Christian businesses, particularly Christian bakers and florists, to violate their conscience, to set aside their freedom of religion, and that they are compelled to provide services in, con- in con- contradiction to their conscience to serve g- gay weddings and marriages. Though there are many businesses that will gladly serve them. Educational leaders are denying tenure, career advancement, opportunities uh, for further uh, for promotion to professors who believe in creation intelligent design even but for the psalmist despite the opposition from princes the psalmist keeps his focus on God's word though even those in authority oppose him he focuses on God's word he says your servant meditates on your statutes Later in verse 161 of Psalm 119, the psalmist will write a little more about princes. 
He writes, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. This is kind of the same verse, really, same concept. Though princes are persecuting, he stands all of God's word because he's meditating God's word. He's focused continually on God's word. He's amazed by it. See, what gives the servant of God strength in the face of opposition from leaders and from those in authority is the awesome, are the awesome truths of God's word. And while there are many awe-inspiring truths in this book, many revelations that you and I would never know apart from this book, no truth can compare to the greatness of our salvation in Jesus Christ. This book reveals to us a salvation, a great blessing that none of us could have ever, would have ever imagined. When mankind makes a religion, we say, do this and be accepted by God. But when God's word reveals to us how salvation works, it is those who are accepted by God, forgiven, will do this. It's a completely different. This gift of salvation revealed to us, and this, this book reveals to us our sinfulness, our, our need for a Savior, how we are all condemned to eternity and hell in judgment, in fire, in constant suffering. But God sent his son to die in our place. He took on the cross our sins. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. Not just the wrath of, God, wrath of man. You know, we, we understand the wrath of man. We see it in the fallen, a lot of the, the news, the sad news that we read in the world today. But the wrath of God is infinitely greater. The wrath of God was borne by, cross, by Jesus on the cross so that we who repent and believe in Christ, who put our trust in him, his death and resurrection, receive forgiveness of our sins. Receive Christ's righteousness imputed to our account, credited to our account. So that when God looks at us, he does not see our sin. The, our sins demand, by, by his justice, would demand a punishment. But because God, God is a just God, he laid the punishment that we deserved upon his son. We'll look at this theme on Good Friday. And but. This is our salvation. How many times, and I know if you're a believer in Christ, I know this has happened to you. How many times in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your challenges and faith, you went back to the gospel? You went back to Jesus. You went back to, hold on a second, let me see. Things are falling apart, but I'm redeemed. Jesus loves me. I know that when this, the, the worst this life can offer me, it will pass. When this life is over, for the rest of eternity, I'm going to be with God in heaven because of Jesus, because of his death. Christ is my life. All that I'm going to distress me about this life pale in comparison to the life that is, that is mine because of faith in Christ. And that is, our, that is the wonderful thing. That is the, that is the awesome truths of God's word. And that strengthens you and me. 
when we face opposition and trials. When we face opposition and trials, they will take away the joys that, are our, that God gives us in this world. They may take away our freedoms from God. They may take away our family from God. They will take away our, the opportunity, even our, the book itself from us, given to us by God. But they cannot take away our life. They can take away your physical life, but they cannot take away the, that which is life. Life. Verse 24, the worshiper affirms the precious value of God's word. As he meditates on it, they are his delight and they are his counselors. That's where the strength comes from. God's word serves as his wise counsel to his people. If you do not know, if you are unsure, God's word has the answer. God's word will counsel you to remain true. It will show you God. This morning we studied through Job. Job and all his suffering is not told why, but he's told who and what. He's told Trust in the God who is sovereign, the God who is just. This book will be your strength when you are weak. And then consequently, as a result, it will be your delight. You will want to meditate on it because it will be the only thing that you have when everything else is taken away. And that's why we meditate and memorize God's word. The more we depend upon this book, the more we'll delight in it. It is our strength. This passage teaches the people of God to look to the word of God in a world that is opposed to God, his word, and his people. That's what we learn here. That's the instruction And in two very clear statements, this pastor reminds the servants of God, believers in Christ, who you are. You are God's servant, and you are a stranger. Remember these truths about who you are. God's word reveals them to you. And because you are God's servant, because you are a stranger in the earth, do not forget then that this world is opposed to you because it is opposed to God. The world is not your friend. The world wants you to forget God. The world wants you to join them and justify their life apart from God. The world wants you to turn from God's word and join with them in the life that they live. And this is why you need God's word. This is why we need God's word. Because God's word provides us with the the sustenance, the security, and strength we need to serve the Lord in a world that is opposed to God. Because the opposition will come. Persecution will come to all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. And it is coming more and more for those of us Christians who live in America. We must grasp this. If we are going to faithfully sojourn in this world, many of our, many, many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world already know this truth. But in preparation for the inevitable suffering and persecution that will come, if not for the sovereign grace of God, some way, we must be ready. We must be prepared. Let us look to God's word. Let us 
long to behold wonderful things from God's law. Let us constantly pray when we open up this book. Open my eyes, Lord. Open my eyes. Help me to see these truths. Help me to meditate on them. Help me to treasure them. Do not let me wander from them. Help me to live and keep your word. Because I'm your servant, Lord. And I'm a stranger in this earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder from the psalm. Thank you for your word, first and foremost. (coughs) Thank you for the precious treasures of it that we draw from it. The revelations that we receive. Thank you for the reminder, even from this text, of who we are, of who you are, why we need your word. Oh, Lord, forgive us for living as if we were residents and citizens of this world. Forgive us for settling for the life that this world has to offer. But help us to remember that we are sojourners, we are strangers on this earth. We are passing through and there is a, there is greater than greater than the life that the world tries to offer us is the life that we already have in Christ. Help us to live that life even now as your servants. Help us to be faithful to live and to keep your word. And Father, as we face opposition as the people of God will do according to your word, we pray that you would cause us to look again to your word. Lord, it's easy for us as a Bible-teaching church to take for granted your word. We think, well, we have pastors. We have elders. We have our Sunday school teachers. We have our fellowship group leaders. But someday we won't. Father, help us each to do our part, to realize that we too are your servants. That all of us are servants. All of us are called to serve you and to prepare us, to equip us for the work of being your servants in this world. Help us to long for your word, to constantly meditate on it, to learn from it, to study it, to read it. Lord, that you would, through it, provide us the sustenance, the security, and the strength that we'll need. And as we do so, Lord, may we do so so that Christ might be magnified. May this church go forth into our world and proclaim Christ unashamed of the truths of life that are found here within. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.